The National Archives podcast series, Hillsborough, The Tangled Web, presented by Christine Gifford. Afternoon, everybody. Um, I think it is also appropriate that I'm doing this session today because, of course, yesterday was the anniversary of the disaster. And you may have seen the television coverage on Sunday of the memorial services that took place in Liverpool, which take place every year um, for this uh, terrible event. And it's quite interesting when you're in... I'd never been to Liverpool before I was a panel member. And the feeling about Hillsborough in the city is quite palpable. Um, it's um, just something that I've never, ever uh, felt before. I was uh, in the Metropolitan Police at a time when there were bombings in London and um, I just didn't get the same feeling that I got every time we went to Liverpool to talk about Hillsborough. A real emotional roller coaster, I think, for the city and certainly for us as panel members. So I'm going to talk this afternoon um, about the panel and uh, the panel process. Um, the actual match took place on April 15, 1989. It was an FA Cup semi-final, Liverpool Football Club versus Nottingham Forest at Hillsborough, uh, Sheffield, which is the home of Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. It was not the first time that semi-finals had been held um, at Hillsborough. In fact, there'd been one the year before, and there'd been some in the early 80s. But between 82 and 87, 88, the ground had not been used uh, for various reasons as a venue for uh, semi-finals. This was a neutral ground for uh, this match, which was a repeat of a match which had actually taken place uh, the year before. So, um, the attendance was 54,000. Um, absolutely um, full house of Liverpool supporters. And in fact, uh, because there were so many Liverpool supporters and because of the direction of travel of the Liverpool supporters, the Liverpool Football Club asked the FA if the Liverpool supporters could be accommodated at uh, an end of the ground which was nearer the motorway that they would come into, which was not the Leppings Lane end, and because they had more uh, supporters travelling, and it would have been easier to get them in and out. But the police objected to that, said that the uh, Liverpool supporters had always used the Leppings Lane end, and that would be the end that they uh, would occupy at this time. So we had 54 thousand supporters, most all of them of course away supporters because it was a neutral ground, converging on this ground with a kickoff at three o'clock. Uh, the game was stopped by the referee at six minutes past three and the players taken um, off the pitch by the referee. Um, and at that point, those of you who will have seen the television coverage will remember, no doubt, that the whole feeling was, and the whole mindset, and we talk about this in the report, the whole mindset was that this was because there had been crowd trouble. Um, and uh, that was the assumption uh, uh, immediately in the aftermath of the event. It's quite interesting listening to the reports uh, last night and this morning of the Boston bombing yesterday, that people are not quite so quick to rush to judgment about what the cause might be. 
Uh, and every, last night, people were saying, we don't know. They were being asked, it, what's the cause of this bombing? We don't know. Is it Al-Qaeda? We don't know. And I think a lot of lessons like that over the years have been learnt about actual, you know, sort of going off too quickly with assumptions about what's actually causing things. Sometimes what you think you see is not what you're really seeing. And, um, and that certainly was true uh, in terms of what the assumptions were um, for uh, uh, the Hillsborough event. By 3.15, 96 people were dead, already dead or dying. And I've put in there 96 dead or dying because one of the main issues for the families throughout the years between the actual event and the reports of the panel was actually this 3.15 cutoff point. The coroner established, and I'll be talking about it a bit later, that in his view, everybody was dead by 3.15. Um, and I've actually slightly changed that, and I'll talk about that a bit more uh, later on. 400 people treated in a number of hospitals, spectators and members of the emergency services absolutely traumatised by what they had been involved in and what they had seen. And if you, uh, some of you may have seen the programme on Hillsborough that there was, I think the week before last on television, and they were talking to a guy who was actually there. And you could see him all this time later reliving the pressure that his body had been under in the, in the uh, crush uh, on the actual day. So all of these years later, it, it hasn't gone away. Um, and, you know, it's not just uh, that people died or were injured then. The effect on families and people's lives by any event of this kind is going to be uh, almost eternal. Very recently, within the last couple of years, somebody who gave a ticket to a friend who died committed suicide because he could not live with the fact that his friend had died because of his generosity, his action in giving his friend a ticket. So it's not just about what happened in 1989, it's about what is still happening today. So that is the context of, in which we actually started our work. Um, what I'm not going to talk about anymore today is how and why it happened. Because although we, as the panel, threw some light on what needed to be looked at again, we were very careful not to say definitively, this is what happened. This was the cause. What we did say was, this is what the documentary evidence says. It may be conflicting, and we think that maybe other people different roles, different responsibilities, we'll need to look at that documentary evidence again. So what we were doing was pulling together all the papers that related to the event when it happened and in the aftermath and looking, going through those papers absolutely meticulously to see what, um, what we could get from them that might actually give some uh, indication of where further inquiries uh, should be made. So today I'm going to look at the search for the truth between 1989 and 2009, um, at the establishment of the actual panel, the framework and processes within which the panel worked, 
um, the construction of the report of the panel and the context of um, our report. Anybody wants to stop me as we go through? Please do. I don't mind being stopped in questions as we go through. And, you know, I'm very keen to get a discussion going um, here. Okay. Um, at the end of this, I'll tell you how many papers and um, documents we actually went through. Um, but I just wanted to give you some flavour of um, uh, the uh, enormous scope um, of this uh, operation. Um, I led on disclosure, discovery, I suppose you'd call it discovery and disclosure for the panel. Um, and so we had to find all the papers um, that might uh, be relevant, whoever they were held by and wherever they were. So um, I've divided this into kind of phases. So this is the first one, um, the search for the truth. Um, the immediate aftermath was phase one. Uh, straight away, on the day, an internal inquiry was launched by South Yorkshire Police and the Chief Constable of South Yorkshire Police asked the West Midlands Police to set up a criminal inquiry and that criminal inquiry fed into the Home Office inquiry which is probably the most famous one which is the Taylor Report. Um, the report to the Director of Public Prosecutions related to criminal activity and the legal responsibilities of the South Yorkshire coroner. A lot of um, uh, coverage in the press recently because this, in this um, West Midlands Police investigation was heavily um, directed by Norman Bettison um, and he actually acted as the coroner's officer. Uh, on the film on last week, the television programme last week, you'll have seen um, the uh, coroner and on his right-hand side, literally, was a picture of Norman Bettison acting as the coroner's officer. So although there were three distinct lines of inquiry, criminal, public, and coronial, West Midlands Police had a, had a, a, a deep involvement um, in all three of them. And it, administratively, that made some sense because otherwise people would have been tripping over the, each other and they would all have been doing the same work. Didn't do a great deal for having different lines of investigation. And you t what you tend to get then is just a, a view is held and then it's applied to all three uh, lines of investigation, which might have been better uh, dealt with with some independence. Um, the Home Office Taylor Report uh, was published in interim in August 1989 and the final report in January 1990. In August 1990, the Director of Public Prosecutions uh, announced that there would be no criminal prosecutions. This was a bitter disappointment to the families and they were of course further disappointed when after the inquest about which there were whole questions about process and protocol after the inquests were held and completed in 1991 the verdict was accidental death and the families had felt very strongly that had those inquests been held properly, had they been able to ask the questions which they should have been asked, had the evidence been put forward that the families felt should have been put forward, that the verdict might not, who knows, but the verdict might not have been accidental death, that what the families would have wanted then and still want now, and that has not changed, is unlawful killing. So there we are, a situation in March 1991, and here we are in April 2013 and that position has not changed. Families have not wavered from that uh, through all these years. 
the Independent Complaints Commission, Police Complaints Commission, then because of the direction that there would be no criminal prosecutions, the Independent Police Complaints Commission directed that uh, disciplinary proceedings be instituted against Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield. David Duckenfield is, is famous because he was the one who was asked by Graham Kelly in the police box what happened. And he said, the fans rushed the gates and subsequently had to admit that he'd actually lied and that, and that the gates had been opened by police. Um, when the uh, Independent Police Complaints Commission uh, decided to institute these proceedings, uh, David Duckenfield retired on medical grounds um, and is still alive uh, now and actually did uh, contribute some papers to the, um, uh, to the panel. And in January 1992, um, the IPCC decided not to pursue uh, Bernard Murray alone, and he subsequently um, died quite young, actually. Um, because of their strong feelings about the, uh, the unjustness, as they saw it, of the decision, of the whole, it wasn't just about the decision of, of the inquest. It was about the... Um, it was about the way the inquest had been held, the way the coroner's evidence had been put together by West Midlands Police, the actual interviews that had taken place. And again, those of you who saw the programme a couple of weeks ago will have seen the, the BBC interviewing Deborah Martin, who was uh, a woman police officer who was present uh, at the match and who was certainly uh, present in the gymnasium and helping families identify um, the dead and they f the families felt very strongly that Deborah Martin's evidence and uh, evidence of other police officers had actually not been allowed and that was the first kind of indication that some of the statements might have been altered, changed, amended. So the families um, went to judicial review of the inquest decision in November 1993 but uh, while they were allowed to go to judicial review when the review was held, uh, the Lord Justices said that there was no evidence to support new inquests and, <coughs> and in fact, that the inquests had been properly, properly conducted and properly held. Uh, and that was a, a grievous blow uh, to the families. Throughout this period, uh, there was a whole raft of uh, proceedings um, as, as civil litigation. Uh, there were compensation hearings both for people who, families of those who had died, there were compensation people, uh, hearings for the injured, um, and there were compensation hearings for um, uh, members of the emergency services who had been uh, present. Um, as you can see, these involved test cases for pre-death trauma, people who were injured uh, and subsequently died, um, and also the emergency services for secondary trauma. And these uh, involved appeals to the House of Lords. A lot of people say to me now, quite cynically, I think, this is all about money. Um, the money issue was dealt with a very long time ago. Um, uh, South Yorkshire Police settled without admitting liability um, uh, in the early 90s. Uh, all the outstanding cases, and as far as I'm aware, there are no outstanding cases of compensation. That doesn't mean to say they won't ever be opened again, but you know, this isn't because people have not had compensation. There are other issues of principle 
uh, about this whole disaster and money is not uh, a primary driver um, here. Um, this issue for successive governments was like a kind of pesky child kept coming back, would not go away. Families would not go away. The various groups about whom I'll talk in a moment just would not let it go. Liverpool wouldn't let it go. And uh, as a result of that, um, and of uh, continued pressure uh, by, the, by the family groups, um, Jack Straw, when he was Home Secretary, eventually ordered a judicial scrutiny um, to be uh, carried out by Lord Justice Stuart Smith. Um, and the, his terms of reference within the scrutiny were very limited. And it was not to review everything that had happened. It was only to look for and at evidence which had previously been unavailable, either to Taylor or to the coroner or to the police inquiries. So he was only looking, it was really like a gap analysis. What was missing before and what, is there anything in what was missing, if we can find there was anything missing, is there anything there to, for us to look at? And um, to say that his uh, report was disappointing um, is actually putting it very mildly. Um, I think the view would be that um, uh, it, the, this scrutiny was not as robust as it might have been. Um, if we were able, um, uh, you know, a long, long time later to actually find information that apparently Stuart Smith didn't see, didn't look for, didn't find, like, you have to wonder why that happened. So, and that can only be put down to a lack of drive to do so, I suspect. So he reported in 1998 that there were no grounds for uh, taking any further action. And Jack Straw had some sympathy with that. You can see that from the papers that we published and, um, and was content then to let the matter lie. No further action. I need here just to talk briefly about the, the groups, the family groups, who without a doubt are the, the only reason that this issue has been in the forefront of Liverpool's concern and more latterly national concern, uh, particularly over recent years. Originally, the Hillsborough Family Support Group uh, was formed in the aftermath of the disaster. Um, but it fragmented, and it fragmented fairly quickly because uh, there was disagreement about whether this support group should represent just the families of those who had died or whether somebody should be representing the families of those who had been injured as well. And so the group split. Hillsborough Family Support Group today, whom you will hear as the major group, actually represent the families of those who died. The Justice Campaign, which is you would have seen on television at the weekend, unveiling, unveiling a memorial in the city centre, um, is led uh, by Sheila Coleman and represents the some of the families of those who died, but also a, a, a group of um, uh, survivors. And Anne Williams, represents a very small group, but a very, very important group. She has felt from uh, the very beginning 
that the inquest decision to say that everybody was dead by 3.15 was wrong and that her son Kevin was not dead at 3.15. And if the premise was that everybody was dead at 3.15 and she could prove otherwise, then the whole basis for the inquest was wrong in law. And she has gone as far as the European Court to try to overturn the inquest, and that's been her very narrow but very, very specific focus. And of course now, because the inquest verdicts have been set aside, and because the whole issue of the 3.15 has been called into question by our report, Anne Williams certainly feels that she has always felt that her campaign um, was justified. Um, but she must feel a huge satisfaction that she fought for so long for justice for her son, um, who went off to, you know, who she said, just like Margaret Aspinall, I sent my son off to a football match and I never saw him again. He never came home. And so Anne Williams, although working virtually alone, has been a really, really important part of the equation. So in June 2000, after all the disappointments of Stuart Smith, um, uh, the Hillsborough Family Support Group brought a private prosecution for manslaughter against David Duckenfield and Bernard Murray. Murray was acquitted, um, and interestingly, the jury was undecided on David Duckenfield. Um, and the feeling is that um, that indecision was very close. We don't know because, of course, we don't know how the jury felt. We're not privy to that. But that it was a very close decision. But even though it was felt that it was a very close decision, the application for a retrial, retrial uh, was refused. And then in um, 2009, it was quite interesting because I was watching the memorial service at Hillsborough on television. I'm a football fan. Uh, although I'm not a Liverpool fan, but I am a football fan. And I was watching the memorial service uh, at, on, on the 15th of April 2009, and I, I saw the reaction of the crowd at the memorial service to Andy Burnham when they silenced him because of their chanting for justice for the 96. And anybody who saw that, I don't think, could have been other than affected by it. But of course, I'm sitting watching it in my home, not knowing that uh, within about, I think, four or five months, I was going to get a phone call saying that the Home Secretary had decided to set up an independent panel to look at the documents, not a public inquiry, but to look at the documents relating to Hillsborough, and would I uh, be a member of that panel? Now, I can remember talking to my husband about it, and I said, I'm not sure I can do this. And he said to me, and he was absolutely right, as he always is, of course. Um, he said to me, I don't think you can not do it. I think this is a huge privilege to have been asked, and, and I do feel that. Um, I didn't know a great deal about uh, the disaster. I certainly had been kind of aware of all the legal cases that had happened, the court hearings and everything else. But I hadn't, you know, but I had been aware of the families pushing for a review. But suddenly, and here we are in January 2010, um, and I'm a member of the panel. 
So who were the interested parties who were going to be key to the work of the panel? The families, first of all, the, um, the family support group, the Justice Campaign, and Williams. And I should mention here that there were a number of families who we subsequently identified who were not members of any of these um, groups. And in fact, the biggest group of families were the unaligned. We traced all 96 members of all 96 families. So all the way through this process, we were able to talk to and to keep up to date members of all the 96 families if they wanted to be involved. Now, some of them had put it behind them, did not want to be involved. That, of course, their prerogative, their absolute right to do so. But those families, including the unaligned, we kept involved. And in, subsequently, when we were briefing families, we did actually have separate briefings for unaligned families who did not want to be members of any of these groups. It's been interesting since the report was published that a lot of the unaligned families have actually now joined formal groups, but some of them still don't want to do that, and that's absolutely fine. So the second group here, organisations involved in the arrangements for the match. Um, the obvious ones, Liverpool Football Club, Nottingham Forest Football Club, Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, the City Council, the FA, uh, Health and Safety Executive, um, the, uh, Chef the City Council itself, um, a lot of organisations, but you know, a lot of others, the Yorkshire Ambulance Service, who were uh, uh, there in attendance. Uh, of course, South Yorkshire Police. So spectators not uh, attached to any group organisations and individuals with roles and responsibilities in the aftermath, the Home Office, Departure for, Department for Culture, Media and Sport, the Attorney General's Office, the Director of Public Prosecutions, um, all of those, and of course the general public. The, the outstanding um, facet, I think, for this has been that all the way through we we're in, in the fields of information. We talk glibly, very often, about the public interest. What is in the public interest? Here we had an issue where, and when I talk about information, information management, I say to people, do not confuse the public interest with what the public are interested in, because most of the time they bear no relationship to each other. This was different. Here, we had an issue that the public were critically interested in, but where there was this big, big question of what was in the public interest. And that, for me, as somebody involved in information and in accessibility and transparency, was very, very um, uh, important. Okay? We were a panel, not a public inquiry. Um, we had very wide-ranging terms of reference, but we were limited to the historical truth. We could not compel disclosure. We couldn't say to anybody, you will give us the papers, you will uh, reveal what you did with them, except, except, of course, that many of the organisations we dealt with were public sector organisations, and they were subject to FOI. Now, I don't know how many of you know, but my background is in the, the actual putting together of the Freedom of Information Act 
and in the implementation of it in the public sector. So um, I was very aware that we might be able to just put a little bit of pressure on some organisations by saying, if you don't give us the information, somebody will make an information request and you'll end up looking very silly and very protective and very conservative with small c and looking as if you've got something to hide. So why not just give us the papers now and we'll work with you about disclosure. So FOI was important. It was never used as a tool to hit people around the head, but it was always there in the background as something which would have been useful had it had to be used at the end of the day. And of course, we had no no rec we had no power to make any recommendations for further action. And that was particularly difficult because as we were going through and identifying fact, it was very difficult not to take that extra step and say, so we think, because that wasn't in our terms of reference. We, we had to just lay it out and let the public, the people in, in, in positions of, of authority, and power and responsibility decide what to do next. We could not say, we want new inquests. All we could say was, have a look at this. Have a look at some of the medical information that we've actually established. And we would ask the question whether this is right, whether those interest verdict, inquest verdicts, verdicts were correctly based. But we couldn't make the recommendation. And our key task was to add to public understanding. And one of the comments that's been made about the report is about how readable it is. That it is actually something you can wander through as if you were reading a historical um, account. That it is eminent, you can put, put it together, you can see what was happening. And that's really uh, what we wanted to do. We didn't want it to be uh, dry, we wanted the public, the families particularly, to feel as if we had them in mind uh, when we were writing our account of our journey of discovery uh, through the papers. So here's the panel, right Reverend James Jones, uh, Bishop of Liverpool, um, very charismatic man, great chair of panel, absolutely. Um, you know, when you I'll talk about the other members in a moment, all of us, I think, you know, would run away with ourselves and our own topics if we were allowed to do so. Uh, the bishop did not allow that to happen. He brought us back into focus all the time, didn't let us get on our hobby horses, and made us really consider the issues that we're dealing with. Raju Butt is a, a very well-known uh, lawyer who is a civil rights lawyer, but has a, spe a specific interest and expertise in coronial law and his expertise and knowledge was hugely important. Katie Jones is uh, with the BBC, and she was responsible for the Jim McGovern um, documentary that, that came along the way, which was, was really opened the can of worms uh, about what had happened and the police amendments of the statements. Bill Kirkup is, was, had just retired as Deputy Chief Medical uh, officer of Health at the Department of Health. And I have to say that, in my view, if he had not been on the panel, we would not have produced the report that we did. Because of his expertise in uh, medical statistics and because of his expertise in 
uh, and ability to uh, uh, look at the pathology uh, that was involved that none of us, none of the rest of us could have done. And throughout the history of Hillsborough, there's been a, um, uh, a tendency to accept that what the original pathologists said was, were, had to be correct because they were pathologists. And whenever it's been questioned, and it has been questioned on a number of occasions, at the inquest it was questioned, in, and uh, on other occasions, judicial review it was questioned. The, um, it, they've always come down on the side of the original pathologists. Bill Kirkup looked at it as a scientist and was actually the one to discover a number of uh, um, things which, which certainly shocked us, but also shocked the family. The first thing was, um, and that was that there had been some activity relating to in the, in, in the um, uh, pathology that the families were not aware of, that we had to make sure that they did know about that. But also, he was the one who discovered that actually the 315 cutoff point was not, probably not correct. That people could have survived after 315 had the triage, had the medical treatment and others, and that 41 of the 96 might have survived. And I have to tell you, that moment was the most difficult moment in the cathedral where we. we spoke to all the families first in the cathedral and Bill told them this and each family was seen afterwards and told whether their relative was one of the 41 who might have survived but at that moment I just you heard this terrible intake of breath as people first of all they they couldn't take it in and then you saw this realization dawn of what exactly Bill was saying and the work he did was absolutely fundamental to the outcome uh, from the panel. Paul Leighton, uh, a very senior and very well-respected police officer from Northern Ireland, who was uh, very much to the forefront of dealing with the various police authorities that were uh, concerned with our work. Phil Scraton, from, again, from coincidentally from Northern Ireland, but actually Liverpudlian originally, uh, who led, uh, who's professor of law at Queen's and who led the research team. Uh, Peter Sissons, uh, a Liverpudlian through and through, well-known journalist. Um, and Sarah Tyak, who those of you who um, have been here for a long time and will remember fondly as the keeper of the public record and a great friend of mine. So um, uh, that, that's the panel. Families first. Whatever we found, we were determined that the families were going to know it first. People have said to me, well, you must have told David Cameron. He must have seen the report before the families did. No, he didn't. No, he didn't see the report. Nobody saw the report in its entirety before the families, apart from members of the panel and the uh, secretariat. Um, and the secretariat were crucial to our work because You'll see in a moment we could just could not have done it all without them. Um, so families first. David Cameron, the night before, I think, one of the members of the Secretariat, spent virtually the whole of the evening before and all of the morning of disclosure over at number 10, going through the critical points. But David Cameron did not see the report before the families did at, I think it was 10 o'clock on the morning of the 12th of September. So we absolutely kept the principle of families first. 
that it, our focus clearly was on the discovery of the documents. We couldn't do our work without the discovery of the documents. And I'm going to talk a bit about that in a moment. But we were determined to leave no stone unturned. And as we found one set of documents, that led us to another set of documents or another person who we went back to and asked about whether uh, documents were there. There were constant negotiations over um, access and disclosure. Some organisations, actually I have to say the majority, when they were approached just said, yes, fine, here we are. But there were one or two, maybe four or five, who actually were very reluctant to allow access. And some uh, of which ultimately decided not to allow access and therefore not to disclose to the panel and to the public. The importance of the historical truth. This is what we were looking for. What was the truth based on the papers? That's what we were trying to find out. And that our report was not to be our view. It was to be the strands that we'd been able to pull together because of the uh, documents that we've been able to look at and the jigsaw that we've been able uh, to put together. And that anything we said, the document had to be there as well. And I think that's what makes this report unique. You look at the report, there's a link, and you find the document which backs up what we've actually said um, in the report. So we had to identify potential information holders, and I've already said something about the fact that they weren't all public sector organisations. FOI did have its kind of subliminal place in relation to public sector organisations, but of course it absolutely did not cut the mustard with the private sector organisations. And one of the things I think we said later in the report is that maybe I, there's no appetite for extending FOI at the moment. In fact, I think there's a lot of regret that it even goes as far as it does. Um, but were there an appetite? And with the changing face of the public sector and more involvement of private sector organisations where public money is being pumped into it, I think there is a case. Personal view, not the view of the panel. This is being a podcast, I must say this. My personal view is that there is a case for an extension of the FOI Act so that wherever public money is spent, FOI will apply to that part of that business because it's quite clear that the shape of the public sector is changing. Um, we asked the question, was the information ever held and does it still exist? All of you will understand, as I understood, that people do not keep records forever. And in fact, here we are, as the public sector, as information managers in the public sector, saying to organisations, here is, we want you to have a disposal process. We don't want you to keep everything all the time. You know, you must have a schedule which says, these are the documents you keep for two years, these are the documents you keep for five years, financial documents for seven years. Here we are, 20 years on, and we're saying to organisations, why haven't you still got this information? Now, my view is that the word Hillsborough itself should be enough to make people have a historical attitude to the importance of these documents. But you couldn't really blame them if they didn't. And quite traditionally, this kind of work has been done at not that kind of political level, it's been done at a lower level. But we found an amazing amount of material, much more than I um, actually thought. Um, but some, some material, we, we had to do a lot of work on. One of our colleagues uh, was pacing the streets of Liverpool 
uh, looking for a warehouse where some material might have been held, but nobody could remember the name of the warehouse because it had been stored there for so long. I have to say, he found it. Um, and I'm not going to talk about which organisation it belonged to, but it was an organisation which had changed its, its um, footprint so many times that people... Are, and, you know, it, shows the diff it shows the dangers of losing your corporate and historical memory when you can actually not remember what's happened to papers as important as Hillsborough. But um, uh, our colleague within the Secretariat actually did manage to identify the warehouse and find the papers. Um, needless to say, because a lot of these papers originated from the early 90s, a lot of them were in paper format. So that caused us another um, issue. Right, just a quick list of the major contributors. Groups representing the families, South Yorkshire Police, quite obviously Sheffield City Council, Home Office, NHS, what happened at the hospitals, the pathology, um, the Football Association, and down at the bottle, bottom separately, lawyers for most of the contributing organisations. So you had the organisation and you had their lawyers. And then the lawyers, in one case, had, I think, changed their corporate footprint about five times. And so we were, you know, looking for papers um, which did... And, and it was amazing. In the example I'm thinking about, we did actually uh, find the papers. Um, at the very beginning of the process, I wrote a uh, document which we called the Memorandum of Understanding and the Redaction Framework. Memorandum of Understanding was followed a meeting with all donating organisations where I said, this is what I expect of you. This is what I expect you to do. I expect you to look for this information. I expect you to find it. If you can't find it, I want you to tell me why you can't find it and when it was destroyed. That was something of a pious hope, but I thought they might make the effort. Um, and if you do find it, I'll, we want to see it. And we want to see it unredacted. We will talk about disclosure separately, but initially we want to talk, see it unredacted. Um, when we talk about disclosure, we will talk about this overarching principle of disclosure in the public interest. So we may be talking about documents which were confidential at the time. We may be talking about documents which were subject to legal and professional privilege. But we've got a public interest here, and the public interest is overwhelmingly in disclosure. So for public sector organisations, a presumption of disclosure in line with FOI, don't use exemptions, um, limited opportunities for redaction, legal and professional privilege, confidentiality and statutory prohibitions on disclosure, and information including indicating the views of ministers. Um, I have to say that we didn't find any in the last category at all. Um, no information held by government was held, withheld from the panel and we had full access, including full access, to all the cabinet minutes. These were the assumptions that I made in the redaction framework. I said that, first of all, do not use legal and professional privilege because I expect it to be waived. And if you're not going to waive it, I want to know why. Why you think it still applies now. And those of you who know about FOI will know that legal and professional privilege is a very narrow concept. It applies between two bodies. If it goes wider, it doesn't apply. And that's something that a lot of organisations had shared a lot of information, and then they all wanted to claim legal and professional privilege. It doesn't work that way. So 
Um, that was a, a really important uh, uh, criteria, which eventually we got the message through, I think. Data protection. We asked the families, at the, the very, following the very first meeting of the panel, what do you want to do about family-sensitive data, about things like the pathology reports, the photographs? We want everything put in the public domain, they said. And um, uh, so we felt um, that we were on fairly uh, safe ground when we started to do that. But subsequently, we realised that there would be some issues for organisations in processing that data um, in that way. And we sought the help of the Information Commissioner, who was very supportive. And so we got a new statutory instrument. And even then, you will see in the report that we took a decision, the panel took an executive decision, that some of the material was so distressing uh, that the families, in a sense, had consented to something they didn't know what the reaction was going to be. And so we went back through all the material and looked at it. And what we did was we said to families, we're actually not going to disclose this material into the public domain. But if you want to see it on an individual basis, we will help you through it. So that, that was the line um, that we took. Um, parallel disclosure. Let us see all the information unredacted. And that will go to the researchers so that they can get the whole picture. And, then, and that was Phil Scranton's side. And then talk to me about that information that you think should be redacted. And we'll have our own discussions about those potential redactions and see where we get. So it was this principle of uh, parallel disclosure. Every redaction that you see in the report was agreed by me. So I saw all of the documents. And I, wherever any organisation wanted to redact, a word, a sentence. I don't think we've got whole chapters redacted anywhere, but every redaction was agreed by me except where they were redacting a name. And we agreed the principles of names. Low-level, I don't mean low-level officers, junior officers, PC sergeants, up to the rank inspector, the names were redacted above the rank inspector, the names were there. And that parallel was applied throughout the public sector. So every redaction was agreed. Nobody was allowed to just push a redaction through and say, it's there because we want it. And we bounced a huge amount back and said, no, no, we're not going to have this under legal and professional privilege. It's not a proper claim here. This isn't personal sensitive information. Section 40 won't apply. And uh, this isn't confidential anymore. The whole world knows about it. How can you say that it's confidential? Um, and... But at the same time, we managed to achieve that all the material was seen in an unredacted format. As I said before, a huge amount of um, paper information, and we had to find a way of digitising this paper organisation from a huge number of organisations. Can I just say that I, I went to um, one of the... I shan't say, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I went to one of the depositories, um, places of deposit, uh, where they had a huge amount of the information stored. And I sat down at a meeting to discuss the whole process, and they told me who was going to do it and everything else, and I was quite happy. And then somebody said to me, but we haven't got a scanner. And I just, I just, I was speechless. I said, well, you know, how are, we going to, how are you going to do it? Well, we don't know, we haven't got a scanner. So that kind of sent me away to think about the whole issue of how we were going to deal with digitised information, how we were going to actually digitise it, 
and how we were going to deal with it. We also needed to create an audit trail. We knew that people would say, okay, you've seen 450 documents, but you've only published three of th 300 of them. What's happened to the other 150? You're hiding something from us. So in the report, you will find, and online, you will find an audit trail of every single document that we dealt with, whether it was put in the public domain afterwards or not. Um, we used to digitise, we used uh, Lextranet, which I'd, which I'd actually come across before. I've been doing some work, still doing some work on the Al Sweedy inquiry, and Lextranet is the system that's being used by Al Sweedy, so we've, where they've got hundreds of thousands of documents as well from the Iraq War. And uh, all the organisations could see their own information because they wanted just to deal with their own information and they didn't want anybody else to see it until we'd agreed it all. So it was all organised in kind of silos. Um, but approval and QA was always by panel members. Nothing was held back or went out without being approved by one of the panel members. And this is Lextranet. And I thought it would be interesting for all of you as information people to see how it worked. So these here are the organisations. These are what we call team folders and these belong to the organisations. So here you've got Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, South Yorkshire Coroner, um, Trent um, uh, DHS, Yorkshire Ambulance Service Attorney General, and you've got the families here, family information which came in, papers which came in uh, from the families, the FA, the Football League. All of the organisations who, who had information to donate were put on this, this gateway, okay? So if I, so informa digitised information would be uploaded. I had access to this wherever I was working. I had access to this. So for example, if I knew that um, uh, Sheffield City Council had uploaded information, it would go through, I could then click on this team folder uh, and it would open up all these boxes. And all of these processes would be got through by the donating organisation before it came to me. And then it came to me. And I came here and I could then, then see all of the information that this organisation was prepared to disclose and what of that organisation they wanted to redact. And I was able to see the proposals for redaction at that stage. And at that point, I either agreed it or I went back to them and said, no, I'm not approving this. We need to talk about it or you need to think again um, about what you're going to do. And the way that I viewed the information was like this. Came up on my screen as a panel. This is just a policy committee meeting uh, where they talked about, um, this is Sheffield City Council, and they talked about Hillsborough, it's not on that one. But, and these are all of the information, the file information about what's happened. So that every piece of paper has an audit trail associated with it. You can see who saw it, when they saw it, when they amended it, when it was QA'd the first time, when it was QA'd the second time, and so on. So this was the process that we used. And I have to say, it was absolutely brilliant. The thought of doing this, all this, by hand was just, you know, on paper documents would have been a nightmare. So that's how we dealt with all the information. And how we dealt with the information fed into the structure of the report. Um, 
parallel disclosure is I was working on, we got it all digitized, it all went off to the researchers, and I started to talk to the organizations about disclosure. Parallel disclosure, that's the principle of it. The research teams then went through all the information and they knitted it all together. Um, the identification of the phases of the events was really important, important. And what we had to make sure as well in the report was that when a report mentioned a document, it was actually there and that it had been disclosed and that it was fully visible. So there was this um, uh, real uh, operational issue to make sure. And sometimes when we were running dummies, we found that we got a link and it linked to the wrong document or the document wasn't there or whatever. We had to make sure that that was right. Um, how successful were we? We identified 150 organisations who might have held information. Of those, 85 actually gave us information. The others didn't hold any relevant information. Um, not all were public sector. Probably 450,000 pages of information, of which uh, eventually 350,000 were digitised. The rest are available at various places of deposit, and that is referenced in the report. Only two organisations refused to disclose information to the panel. We published the report on September the 12th. As late as August the 8th, I was still trying to get one of those organisations to let us have the information. And uh, well, just let us have it. We didn't even necessarily want to publish it. We just wanted the information. Um, we held the principle of families first. The report was universally well received. To my amazement, nobody has yet stood up and said, rubbish, you know, because, and I think it's because of the link between text and documents. Um, of course, we had the um, apology on behalf of the nation by the Prime Minister. The, set, the inquest verdicts have now been set aside. New inquests are going to be held. IPCC is conducting an investigation into the actions of the police. And there is a criminal investigation being led by John Stoddart into all of the other issues that were raised. Great pleasure. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 16th of April 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.